Well, it's good to see y'all. It is always good to see y'all, and it's good to be in God's house. I, I'm excited about this series. We've talked about how the church is the bride of Christ, and God wants us to be as committed to his bride as he is. And we've talked about last week how the church is God's solution to the division and the uh, racial division and every other kind of division in our society by building a new kind of temple built of every kind of human being alive, every race, nation, tribe, and tongue, all under one God, one King, Jesus Christ. And that's the way a church should be. Today, we're gonna look at another aspect of the church. As Nathan has already said, we're gonna talk about it being the pillar of the truth. I, I understand and I know I'm, I'm grateful that y'all come and you listen and you pay attention when I speak. That's very gratifying to me. I also know that you forget almost immediately most of what I say. Um, I know that because I forget almost immediately what I say. I, I run into people and they're like, what'd you preach on Sunday? And I'm like, uh, God. So I, I get that. But I think this one, at least at least part of this one is gonna stick with you because this is the one where you're gonna hear how to, pre- how to fire the preacher, okay? Not making that up. We're actually gonna talk about that. That comes later, so stay awake. You don't wanna miss that. But we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory." And you probably know this, but in case you don't, this book of the Bible is a letter written by Paul to his friend, Timothy, who he calls my son in the faith. Paul didn't have any earthly children, but he had met this young man, led him to Christ, and now he treated him as a son. And now Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Last week, we read out of the book of Ephesians, Paul planted the church there in modern day Turkey. He has left it under the care of Timothy to pastor, to lead. He is writing to say, listen, I'm writing to you so that you'll know the church is three things. He gives the church three titles. He calls it the household of God, the church of the living God, and then he calls it the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we all know what pillars are. We use that term uh, pretty commonly. It's a, it's a pole or a structure that holds up the wall, I mean, the, the ceiling and the roof of a house or a building. We're pretty thankful for those, right? Now, there's also a buttress. That's not a word we often use. Some of you are, are maybe into archaeology. Uh, archaeology, look at me, architecture and and buildings, a buttress is something that girds up or supports a tower so that it doesn't fall over or lean. So in both cases, he's saying the church holds something up. What does it hold up? The truth. What is the truth? God's word. The, The church is the one thing that holds up the truth to a society that doesn't want to believe in the truth. He says, I am writing these things to remind you that the church is the pillar of the truth. What is these things? What is he referring to? He's talking about the whole letter. He's saying, the reason I wrote you this long letter is to remind you of the job of the church, the church you lead there in Ephesus. It is a pillar and buttress of the truth. In fact, the whole book is about that. And I'm gonna show you what what I mean by that because I'm gonna read you several passages out of this book and you'll see what I'm talking about. Chapter one, verses three through four. 
This is the beginning of the book. This is how it starts. After the greeting, he says, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So he's saying, I need you to stay there as pastor. I know it gets discouraging, Timothy, but don't quit because I need for you to get the people back on track with the truth because there are people in that church who are teaching things that are lies. There, there are people who are teaching false doctrine, but also they're talking about, as Paul calls it, myths and endless genealogies. What he's referring to, scholars will tell you, is in the ancient world, they would take biblical characters and make up new stories about them. It's, it's sort of similar to what happens these days when, when people online write fan fiction, right? Uh, and it's like, okay, here's a story I'm making up about this person, and then it becomes part of the, the legend. And so people in the early church were, they were making up stories or they were taking these legends about Moses or, or David or Abraham and they were bringing them into the church and teaching them as if they were fact. And Paul says, no, no, we've got the truth. Teach the truth, Timothy, so they, don't, they won't get caught up in all this other stuff that causes controversy. He goes on and, and by the way, names two of them later in chapter one, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, these two men, these two men have shipwrecked the faith. It's a really picturesque way of putting it. It's like God's word and God's church are a ship and they have steered it right into the rocks and they've hurt a bunch of people and they have sunk the church. Now in chapter four, verses one through two, he says, the spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Don't you love how Paul is so subtle? He's not actually, he, he very much calls out people because that's how important the truth is. And, and you'll notice if you read the New, Testament, the New Testament and you, you pay close attention, every book of the Bible, every book of the New Testament warns us of the same thing, which is false teachers will show up. The, the enemy will use this tactic. He'll bring in people who are eloquent. They're, they, they seem successful, they seem effective, and they seem to be teaching something that's close enough to the truth that it, it sounds logical and and plausible, but it's not the truth. Watch out for that. He goes on in in chapter four, verse 16, and he says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Remember those two, life and doctrine. Those are two things we're we're gonna talk about both in this message. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And in chapter six, verse two through five, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. What I want to point out about that passage is the New Testament, yes, warns against false teaching, but it also warns against people who just like to stir up trouble who just like to divide God's people. And if you bring in your opinions, and by the way, you're an American, you can have an opinion on politics, you can have an opinion on on the way people dress and on who should be the quarterback of your favorite team, you can have an opinion on all these things, but if you bring them into the church and you divide God's church because you insist on your opinion as the only way, you are doing the work of the enemy. And that's what Paul's warning here. Don't let them do that, keep them focused on the truth, Timothy. In chapter six, verse 20, this is the end of the book, the way the book ends. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. 
Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Once again, Paul wants to leave him with this idea. It's your job as pastor to keep them on the truth because the church is the pillar of the truth. And if the church doesn't uphold the truth, what happens? I was 17 years old when I left my family's home for the first time. I I would turn 18 in a few days, uh, the first day of my college career. First day of college for me was my 18th birthday. I can't believe I wasn't even an adult yet. And my parents let me drive off from Little Yoakum, Texas to Big Bad Houston. And I'd been a good kid. My parents, good Christian home. They had certain rules that I was expected to obey. And for the most part, I did. I wasn't real rebellious for a teenager. But going off on my own, I was excited about the fact that I got to call the shots now. You know, I got to go to bed when I wanted and eat what I wanted and study as much as I wanted and hang out with who I wanted and no one, didn't have to ask permission for any of it. And I I remember my first act of rebellion was that I decided that I wasn't gonna put a pillowcase on my pillow. (laughs) I know, crazy guy right here. Um, But you have to understand, I've always hated making the bed. I've always thought this was the most useless household task. I still do. Uh, My wife, of course, keeps an immaculately made bed and occasionally she'll ask me to come help. And of course I do because I like being married. But uh, it's just like, why are we doing this? We're just going to undo it in a few hours anyway. And Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, says, I don't make my bed for the same reason I don't tie my shoes after I take them off. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And so as a 17-year-old kid, I was like, yeah, mom bought me this, this sheet set for my twin bed there in the dorms, and I'll, I'll put on that fitted sheet, that's an adventure, and I'll put on the other sheet, but I'm not going to put on that dadgum uh, pillowcase because in my 17-year-old brain, that was just something that fussy women like my mother insisted on, right? It, it was not practical, it didn't matter, it's just, you know, they just did that to be fussy. And so I didn't, I didn't put a pillowcase on my pillow. And after about a week, maybe two, I noticed this odd thing that my pillow was turning yellow. I'm sorry, I should have given you a trigger warning. I know that's graphic, but it was turning yellow and it was was starting to smell bad. And, And that's when I realized two things. I realized, number two, that the human head is nasty. Yes, your head is nasty. You're beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, you've got oil, you've got dirt, you've got all this, and especially when you're walking around the campus, Third Ward, Houston, August, September, yeah, it's, it's nasty. The other thing I realized is things that are true are true whether you want them to be true or not. And, and if you just ignore the truth, if you just insist that, no, 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 I don't believe that, then chaos ensues. I learned that you actually do need a pillowcase on your pillow. And for the rest of my college career, every time I would pull the pillowcase off my pillow, I would be reminded that I thought something was true that wasn't. And the truth is true whether you want it to be true or not. I say as long as my college career lasted because I got married the week after I graduated, my wife was not allowing that pillow into her house. (laughs) Now, Now the truth is when you forsake the truth, chaos ensues, things fall apart. The church's job is to uphold the truth and hold it up high so that the whole world will see. And even those who don't believe in Jesus, they still still enjoy the benefits of living in a society that's based on the truth. It's our job to uphold the truth. Now we can all think of examples of of things that society wants to be true that aren't. And I'm I'm gonna name a couple of them. First of all, As long as I've been alive, there's been a segment of society that has wanted to rewrite the rules regarding sexuality and gender and marriage. 
And they've been extraordinarily successful, especially in the last 10 years. We've seen changes in our society and in what our society believes about those issues that I never thought possible when I was a kid. And it's the job of the church to graciously but firmly say the standards that God set, the the pattern, the design that God has for gender and for sexuality and for marriage, that's that's true whether we want it to be true or not. And that not only is it true, it's loving. God created those, those designs, those guidelines, not to make life harder for us, not, not because he doesn't want us to have fun and be ourselves, but because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And, and here's the thing, the, the truth is an equal opportunity offender because a lot of people in society who will cheer us when we say that truth will on the other hand try to shout us down or shut us out when we want to talk about how the Bible consistently, consistently tells us that God is concerned about those who are on the bottom and those who are poor and those who are immigrants and those who just don't have as much and any society that doesn't take care of those people will, will earn the wrath of God. And so it's our job to hold that truth up too, to say God cares about those people, even though you want to ignore them, even though you want to blame them for their lot in life, God cares about them and it's our responsibility to to take care of them too. Now don't stop listening. Because if if right now you go off on a little tangent and start thinking of other issues and and what does the Bible teach about them, that's, that's fruitful, but that's not what we're talking about because I don't want you to walk away today thinking Oh, okay, the focus of the message is that we are the ones who put out the Christian viewpoint on every issue. You've got your conservatives over here and they're giving you the conservative perspective and your liberals are giving giving you their perspective and the church comes in and says, well, actually, here's what the Bible says. If that's all you hear today, then you don't hear what it really means to be the pillar of the truth. Because if all the church is is just another think tank, just another voice in the national conversation, then we are wasting our calling. The truth we uphold is not just the truth about sexuality, poverty, or any other political issue. The truth we uphold as the pillar of truth is the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The gospel is the story that God loves you so much that he died for you in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, how do I know this? How do I know that's what Paul's talking about? Because Paul says, after he says we're the pillar of the truth, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. Last week we talked about this. The word mystery is used every once in a while in the New Testament. Doesn't have anything to do with a talking dog and a van with you know, teenagers solving mysteries. Never mind. Um, what it has to do with, the mystery that, by, that the Bible is talking about is God's secret plan. Something God's been working on and planning all along that humanity's just now learning about God's secret plan, Paul says, the mystery of godliness is great, and then he quotes a song. If you go back and read uh, verses, uh, verse 16 that we started off with, that is, a, that is a song that the early church sang. How do we know it's a song? Because it's in verse form. Paul just didn't all of a sudden start writing poetically. He's quoting a song they sang back in the old days. Now, why does he do this? For the same reason that sometimes I will quote Amazing Grace or, or uh, Only a Holy God. Because music has a way of capturing our hearts that spoken words don't. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, the mystery of godliness is great. Now remember the song you sing every Sunday? It's about Jesus. It's about how he died for us. It's about how the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead and he ascended into heaven, vindicating him for all time. And now his name is being preached around the world and people are being saved. That is a song they sang in those churches and Paul's saying, remember that? That's what it means to be the pillar of the truth. Those are the truths we uphold. The truth of the gospel because that's 
what sets people free, to put it another way. It's great if we wanna talk about God's design for gender and sexuality, but if we do that and we don't also let the people who disagree with us on those issues know that God loves them as much as he loves us and wants to save them the way he has saved us, then we are not upholding the truth, no matter how many debates we engage in. And we can advocate for poor people and we can clothe the, the, the naked and we can feed the hungry and we can educate those who are illiterate and we can do all those good deeds. But if at the same time, we're not letting those people know that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ, then we're just a banging gong or a clanging cymbal in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. We uphold the truth of the gospel. That is the truth that matters. That is the truth that saves. Now, is the church doing it? Are we doing our job? I'd like to say that First Baptist Conroe is. As far as I know, you won't hear any false teaching in any life group in this church. And, and it's, my, it's my honest and, and sincere goal to preach nothing but the truth when I preach up here. We'll talk about if you disagree with that in just a moment. But what about the church capital C? What about the church in America? I, I'd say the results are mixed, but for the most part, we're not doing what we should to uphold the truth. Because if we were, we'd see people get saved in greater numbers than we are today because the gospel is that magnetic. It's that attractive to people. And if we were really putting the gospel out there, then we would see souls coming to Christ left and right. We'd see that baptistry filled up on a constant basis. We'd hear more stories like the one I'm gonna tell you at the end of this message. That's what the gospel does. And that's the truth we uphold. So what should we do? What can we do individually and as a church to uphold the truth? There's two things. And for you OCD folks that like to take notes and you wanna be precise, the first point has two subpoints. okay? So you ready? Point number one, we need to teach the truth. Chapter five, verse 17, Paul writes, the elders, by the way, as Baptists, other Christians disagree on this, as Baptists, we believe elders was any called leader in the church. Anybody who's called of God by the church to lead. We would say church staff today. They didn't use that terminology back then. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. All he's saying is, if anybody is called to be a leader in the church, then the other church members should do all they can to make their life easy, to encourage them, to make their burden a, a, a happy one. But he says, especially those who preach and teach. Now, why them? Why them especially? Because that's how important the teaching ministry of the church is. Now, I'm gonna say this, and it's gonna sound very self, um, self-congratulatory, but I hope you see that it's not. You can listen to sermons online. And that's one of the great things about living today. You can hear the greatest preachers in the world anytime you want on your smartphone. You can listen to preaching when you're jogging, when you're commuting to work, when you're just laying around the house. And I encourage you to do that. But that will never replace being taught by the one who is called of God to be your shepherd. Now, you can hear much better sermons than the ones you hear from your pastor. I, I guarantee you, there are more gifted, uh, better educated, better equipped, better resourced, more talented preachers. And listen to them and learn from them. But there's something irreplaceable that happens when you are taught by 
somebody who lives in your midst, in your same community, who prays for your souls, who knows what you're going through, and can then take the word of God and say, here's what the word of God says to us right here in Conroe. In the same way, you can read the Bible for yourself, and I hope you do. You can download all kinds of resources from the internet. You can order books and resources that will come and help you understand God's word better. I commend you to that. Those are, those are worthy pursuits, but they do not replace sitting in a room with the same group of people every Sunday or at least once a week on some other day and, and wrestling with God's word together because then you can ask questions and you can hear their questions and you can listen to their responses and you can wrestle with God's word in such a way that you're working through it together. You're experiencing life together. Then you can bear one another's burdens and for the rest of the week, you can encourage one another when you see each other to continue to follow what you've just read. And this is why we do life groups on Sunday morning. The teaching ministry of the church is key. So support your life group leader. Pray for him or her. Give them the encouragement they need. So the two sub points. The church has to teach the truth. What is your position? What is your responsibility? Number one, actively participate in the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Be here as often as you can. Get involved in a life group. And, and I mean, actually be part of that discussion. Bring with you a, a prayerful heart, ready to participate, actively participate. And then number two, and here's where it gets hard, hold the church accountable, all right? We're gonna get into some hard stuff, some stuff I wish we didn't have to talk about, but we do. So three verses after he tells Timothy to hold the elders who preach and teach in honor. Then he says these words in verse 20 of chapter five. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Reprove means rebuke. It means to call out. It means to hold accountable. What he's saying is sometimes the, the called elders of the church are gonna go off track and it's the church's job to bring them back or else to move them out. The church is, is responsible for holding their own leaders to teach the truth. And I say this all the time. I hope you hear me say this. You have the same Holy Spirit as anybody who preaches the gospel. No matter how long that person's been preaching, no matter how educated they are, no matter what titles they have, no matter what resume they have, you have the same Holy Spirit and the same Bible. You can hold a minister of the gospel accountable and you are called to do that. We're gonna talk about how and when in just a moment. But let me just say, chapter three, we won't read it, but one of the most famous parts of the book of 1 Timothy is in chapter three when it gives the guidelines for how to choose a, a pastor. It says, if, if somebody wants to be an overseer, that was the word they used, here are the qualities they need to have. And if you read the list, you can go look at it. It doesn't say he needs to be attractive, he needs to be educated, he needs to be gifted, he needs to be dynamic. Those are all things we care about, but instead it's a list of character qualities. And see, the shame of it is, there are churches in our country, very successful churches, that would never dream of having someone in their pulpit who doesn't preach the truth, good for them but they'll bring in someone and call them a pastor and give them a platform when they don't have the character to match. They're talented, they're gifted, they can draw a crowd, they preach the truth, but they're not even men, they're boys that can shave. They're narcissists, they're, they're, they're 
people with uncontrollable anger. They're, they're guided by personal ambition instead of the glory of God. They don't love the sheep. They're not a shepherd. And, and even worse is churches that actually call good people, but then when those people stumble, instead of holding them accountable, they cover up their flaws because evil happens in the dark. The church is not a place for darkness. The church is not a place for secrets. The church is a place where everything should be transparent, where, where everything gets exposed to the light of day. And we've seen terrible stories in which famous preachers are accused by multiple women of misbehavior. And their church, rather than, rather than hold that minister accountable, attacks the women and shames them into submission. That should not be. That's a crime against God. Even worse, we've seen situations where children have been abused by a volunteer or even a minister. And when the truth comes out, the children are told by leaders of the church, oh, I'm sorry this happened to you. It's, it's terrible, but just keep it quiet. We don't want to hurt the reputation of the church. That's not what God wants. Or less tragically, but still awfully, when a person in a church wants to ask a question, doesn't understand the direction, doesn't agree, just wants some clarification, or at least wants to be heard. And the leaders of the church treat them as an enemy and run them out of the church with harassment, with shame and guilt. It's not the way it should be. So I'm gonna tell you what to do if you see or hear something you disagree with. By the way, understanding, we're gonna disagree on minor things all the time. And I'm gonna say things sometimes from the pulpit that you'll say, that's not really my opinion, but it's not something that's crucial. That's not, that's not a central doctrine of the Bible. He, he thinks something different about the way Jesus is coming back, but we both agree Jesus is coming back so we can continue to worship together, right? There'll be times when I make decisions as a pastor, we as a church staff make a decision and you're like, that's not what I would have decided, but I see what they're trying to do, so I'll support this. There'll be times when I will let you down because I'm a sinner and so are you and we'll disagree. And in those occasions, we should, we should get back together and, and apologize and make things right. But none of that is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you hear me say something that you know is not scriptural, what should you do? You should come talk to me. You should come talk to me directly, as graciously as you can. If, if you're intimidated by the idea of talking to the pastor, bring somebody with you. But I, I'm, I'm asking you, don't tell anybody else about this before you've had a chance to talk to me first and give me the opportunity to, to discover, okay, is this, an, is this a, a thing where I just misspoke? That's happened before. I've gone back and listened to the recording and thought, man, I, I did a terrible job of explaining that. Is this a case where you were daydreaming and you heard me say something and it wasn't what you thought it was and I just need to correct you? Or is it a case where I'm literally preaching heresy? Well, then I need to be confronted and I need the opportunity to repent. And I hope you will give me that. But I urge you to come to me. I urge you to confront me. And that holds true for your life group leader. And that holds true for anybody else who teaches the word of God on our campus. You go to them. You go to them lovingly. You go to them graciously. You're not trying to get them or take them down. You're giving them the opportunity to say, you know what, you're right. That is what the Bible says. I'm sorry. We'll talk about what to do if they don't repent in just a moment. But what if, you, what if it's not 
a matter of doctrine, but of life? What if you see behavior or character qualities that are not fitting for a minister of the gospel or a leader in God's church? Again, we're called to confront one another. We're called to lovingly rebuke. Take, some, take a brother or sister aside and say, you know, what you just did isn't right. The, what I see in you, this behavior is not fitting and give them the opportunity to repent. I hope you would do that for me as well, just as I'm called to do that for you. I, I will say this, the exception to that is if there's an accusation of abuse against a child. I hope there never is in our church. But if there is, we're not gonna go to the person who's accused. We're gonna call the authorities immediately. That is the first step. And that's true if the accusation is against me. That's the way things are done. But what happens if you confront that person and they don't respond well? Well, then you come to me. I wish it weren't true, but the truth is I'm responsible for those who work here and those who lead here. And if they're not responding to the word of God and to the godly rebuke of good people, then I have to come in and take over. What if it's me then? What if you come to me and you bring a, a loving rebuke to me and I respond with anger, defensiveness, with guilt tripping or anything of the kind? Well, there's actually a procedure for that. It's written down in the church bylaws. It says, let me see it here. If I am teaching heresy, improper conduct, failure to carry out responsibilities or other justifiable reasons I can be removed by the church. There is a written procedure for how that happens. And I'm not gonna hand out copies of the bylaws. You're free to get one, but I will tell you this. If you have a concern and you think it needs to go that way, the first step in that process is to talk to the chairman of the deacons. Chairman of the deacons right now is named Freddie Walters, good man, um, you don't know him or don't know how to contact him, the church can put you in touch with him. Now, why do I say all this? Not because I think anything is gonna happen in the future. In fact, I, I honestly think it won't. You'll never have to use this procedure. I sure hope not. But I say all these things, not because I wanna create some kind of uh, a culture of paranoia in our church or, or empower people who are troublemakers who like to divide. We've already talked about if you divide God's church, if you harass God's shepherds unnecessarily, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes on judgment day. But I say all these things because the truth is more important than any person's feelings or reputation. The truth matters that much. If my feelings need to get hurt, so be it. If my reputation needs to be hurt, that's okay as long as we uphold the truth. That's how much it matters. Now, one more thing. We have to teach the truth, but we better live the truth too. Live the truth. If we don't live what we preach inside here and teach in our life groups, then what good is it? And when I say live the truth, I don't just mean be moral and devout. I don't just mean come to religious services and do rituals and follow rules. I've had several friends who were Muslims who were as good at that as any Christian I've ever known. So that's not what it means to uphold the truth. That's, there's nothing distinctively Christian about that. I don't just mean be good neighbors and solid citizens and a blessing to your community. The Mormons do that really well and I don't believe they have the truth that sets people free. So what does it mean to uphold the truth? 
It means to live the gospel. Live the gospel. Not just live the rules, not just follow the rituals, but live out this this idea that God loves us more than himself. And that means we have to embrace some some qualities that the world doesn't esteem, like humility, like self-sacrifice. You're never gonna get on the cover of a magazine by being humble or self-sacrificing. You're never gonna get rich. You're not gonna get promoted at work. These things you only do if you wanna live out the gospel. You don't forgive your enemies if you wanna be respected and feared, right? And yet we're called to do exactly that. And, And what it really means to live out the gospel is to go out of our way to show grace and love to people who aren't well disposed to treat us that way. So I read a book last year. I'm gonna close with this story. I highly recommend this book. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. She was, by her own definition or her own words, she was a leftist lesbian professor of women's studies at a state university in New York. And as you can imagine, given that self-description, she did not think highly of evangelical Christians like us. In fact, this was the mid-90s when the story starts. She was uh, very much opposed to the Promise Keepers movement. Some of you are old enough to remember, those of you that aren't, in the 90s, it was this big movement. They'd filled stadiums with Christian men as they would hear, hear uh, messages about how to, how to really uh, take hold of your responsibilities as a husband and a father, as a, as a leader. In her mind, Promise Keepers was just a sneaky way to, to, to bring in male chauvinism and, and, and dominate uh, uh, those who weren't, you know, good white males, of course. And, and so she wrote an article in her local newspaper saying that Promise Keepers was the unholy trinity, I'm quoting here, the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy. I thought that was pretty pithy. Um, she got a big stack of letters huge stack of letters and some of them were admiring letters from her colleagues and her students and from people in the village and the town that agreed with her and others were were letters uh, a lot many from Christians that were very hateful and angry and so she stacked those on the other side of her desk because that was a badge of honor look I've touched a nerve I've, I've hit them where they count but then there was a letter that didn't seem to fit either category It was written by a Presbyterian pastor there in the village, in the town, and his wife. And it it, it asked questions like, how do you know that the things that you believe are true? Have you talked to anyone who believes like I do? Have you asked them why they believe what they believe? Where do you get your conclusions from? Are you willing to discuss these things? Then he says, my wife and I would love to have you over for dinner sometime. Here's our address. Here's our phone number. Just let us know. We're we're not going to pressure you. We don't want to argue or debate. We just want to talk. She threw it away. She didn't know what to do with it. And then she fished it out of, the, out of the trash can a little later and she put it in the middle of her desk and let it sit there between those two stacks and she let it sit there for days until finally she said, you know, if only for research purposes, I might as well go. And she called the pastor and his wife and went over to their house and they had a dinner together that was the beginning of a long friendship where they talked about virtually every subject you can name and they met each other's friends and he prayed over her several times. Eventually, she started reading the Bible and she was very, very surprised. She'd grown up Catholic but never really took it seriously, certainly never opened a Bible. So she was really surprised to find out that Jesus was an incredibly compelling person that she couldn't get enough of. And she said, I began to read the scriptures the way a glutton eats dinner. I just, I just kept, kept gobbling it down. And, and 
deep down, she was terrified of what was gonna happen because if she embraced Jesus, she knew that would change a lot of things in her life that she didn't really want to change. And then one day she woke up on a Sunday morning and she got out of the bed that she shared with her partner early in the morning and got dressed and came to the church, the church that that man pastored. She said, I, you know, the way she described herself, she had this butch haircut and these really tough looking clothes and she had a look on her face that was basically, you stay away from me because I'm not one of you. And yet the people were kind. And every Sunday she would come back and they would treat her with respect and gentleness and they, they were glad to see her and they, no one ever pressured her or made her feel different. They just let her explore this faith. And eventually the day came where she prayed and asked Jesus to be her savior. She said, interestingly, it's not like things have immediately got better. In fact, at first they got worse. My conversion, she said, was like a train wreck. There was all this damage, all these people that I'd hurt because they loved and trusted me and they felt like I was betraying them now. And at the same time, I discovered as I went along that there are lots of Christians that aren't really great people. They're, they're sinners, go figure. They're gonna do bad things. And so it, it's not like everything was a fairy tale and yet she looks back and says, that's my salvation. And, and now now she's married and, and she's raising kids and she's still teaching, but now teaching people about Christ and she's writing these incredible books. And it happened because this couple, this Christian couple said, we're gonna live the truth, not just teach the truth. We're gonna live the truth. We're gonna love people and we're gonna love them to Christ. And that's our calling. 